And the reason I wanted to highlight this is because it flows right into what I just said, right? If you're aiming at this utopian future or the security of having a, a fat savings account at the expense of things in the present, you'll lose the things in the present. You'll lose the present. All right, so last time we talked about how is it, we, we ended on the note of how is it, are we treasuring the things of heaven? And are we taking that value equation and are we, are the right kind of benefits the things that we're valuing? Um, in the value equals benefit minus cost, what exactly are those benefits? So um, I wanna read a quote from Willard here. Um, this is about halfway through his um, section in chapter six titled, um, I think it's something like Beyond the Moth's Corrosion and Thieves. Um, <clears throat> and so this is right after his citation of Psalm 119, verse 91. He says, God himself loves the earth dearly and never takes his hands off of it. And this would go back to our God-bathed world and that whole concept. And because he loves it and it is good, our care of it is also eternal work and part of our eternal life. So you could take this in a number of different directions. Um, one of the most, I think, important is it's important to take care of other, like our fellow human beings, our fellow living creatures and the world itself. We are to value these things. So where do they line up in the value equation? But then he continues, there is a natural order of things that is good to respect. Human beings naturally understand this if they have not been robbed of good sense by their experience and their education. And I think this is a super important point to make too, is because we, we understand that there's an ordering to the world. And this I, I wanted to say in our last time and, and kind of forgot that it was relevant to our, our conversation there, but this idea that all value is arbitrary is just false. There is a natural ordering to the world. So that last point that I was making in our last episode, value is a real thing. It might not be physical, but it's a real thing. And it's, it's not arbitrary. And I think we know this if we haven't been robbed of it by experience and education. So a little bit further down on that same page, um, this is midpoint of the next paragraph after, um, after the footnote six. He says, thus to lay up treasures in heaven is to treasure all of these, all of these intimate and touching aspects of heaven's life, all of what God is doing on the earth. So to treasure things in heaven is to treasure the thing, the activity of God on earth. And is to do so in an order and in, in the order and manner heaven has indicated. And especially as we see illuminated by Jesus himself. And so we're, we're to use the biblical witness, specifically that of Jesus, but I think all of it stands in, in unison, to instruct what it is we are supposed to value. 
And I think specifically in our culture in America, that's the last thing we use to instruct our system of value. So um, to, to use another Willard quote, and this you don't really have to pull up this specific one, although if you wanna go ahead and pull up um, his section, the impossibility of serving both God and earthly goods. Um, I'll read from that in a second, but towards the, the closing of that, the previous section, he says, our treasures focus our heart. Mm. And I think that's a really important thing to recognize is, um, I mean, Jesus says it, where your treasures are there, your heart will be also. And so. But I like that idea because the idea of focus of the yes. narrowing yes. of the hierarchy it's yes, yes. Uh, the the ancient idea and the jewish idea as well is the idea of the the heart as the seat of the will and so that where what you treasure what your will desires is what you will focus on yep well and that's that's the um first part of Jesus answer to um, what's the most important commandment you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and it's I mean we've covered this before it's the lavav. it's yeah. your it, it's your heart but it, it's your will and so you, you're all of your volition everything that you you are aiming at needs to be or everything you are using to aim at something needs to be aimed at loving God first and this is where we're going to get into the, the, next, um, the next quote from Willard um, <clears throat> in this section titled, uh, The Impossibility of Serving Both God and Earthly Goods. Um, this is on page 229 in my copy. Midway through this last paragraph, he says, well, you know, I'll just read the whole thing. So treasuring and serving both God and mammon, that is like wealth, is a, nonsense, a nonsensical idea. In any case, you cannot imagine God would endure it. Of course, you can serve material goods, value them, and use them well for the sake of the kingdom of God. But that is just to do what Jesus said in the first place and locate your treasures in heaven. We shall have a great deal more to say about this in the chapter. Okay, so <clears throat> the point here is, and I'm, I'm going to as is my usual thing, reference St. Augustine of Hippo. Um, he makes this wonderful distinction between two kinds of love, a love of use and a love of enjoyment. And the, I think it's, he's writing in Latin here. I, I think this is Latin. Um, he, he distinguishes these between the uti, which is use, and the frui, which is enjoyment. So he says, um, this is in his work on Christian doctrine. The Latin is De Doctrina Christiana. Sometimes they, translations will translate the title. Sometimes they won't. So um, I think the best translation of this that I'm aware of is called On Christian Teaching or Teaching Christianity, something like that. Anyway, he has this quote. He says, to enjoy something is to cling to it with love for its own sake. To use something, however, is to employ it in obtaining that which you love. 
provided that it is worthy of love. Mm. So we are, we are to, we, we're to love things in two different ways. One, to love the thing itself. And Augustine says that the only thing in existence we are to love in and of itself is God. And everything else, so that's fruity. We are to love God with this fruity, this enjoyment. We are to enjoy God. And God is the only thing that we are to enjoy non-instrumentally, right? That is not as a way of doing something else. Loving God is primary. And that's reflected in Jesus' commandment, right? The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's where you get into the uti. You are to love everything else as using it as a way to love the highest thing. You're to love your neighbor as you love God. You are to love your neighbor or you're, you're to love other things, your possessions, your time, your resources as a way of loving God. You're to use them to love God. And it's this principle that I think forms the bedrock of a solid Christian faith and really brings into question, where is our value really placed? What is it that we are treasuring and why? Um, the next thing that Augustine's really firm about is to treasure the wrong thing. And I've said this several times on the podcast, but to treasure the wrong thing in the top place is doing evil because right. he says all evil flows out from the improper ranking of priorities. And so if you're not treasuring the the trip you end up filling your closet with things you don't need if you're not treasuring god you properly you end up hurting people in small and big ways right right and the time that i referenced this probably most recently uh, was in reference to a paper that i wrote for my god and the problem of evil class where we talked about um a lot of things, one of them being the Holocaust and how scarily enough, a lot of the goals of the Nazis weren't bad in and of themselves. They weren't bad things to value. What they were, were evil things to place in the top priority. Give because them. what they ended up doing Give in a order few to examples. meet those goals was kill millions of people. One of those things is valuing, um, I think, so the sociologist Fred Katz, he has a wonderful book on this. Good example is um, <clears throat> there is a, a doctor, or he, he, he juxtaposes two doctors, a theoretical doctor and a Nazi doctor. The theoretical doctor, he's an epidemiologist, loves studying diseases. He gets this sample in his, um, in his lab, and it takes him several weeks to figure out how to cure this specific disease because it's a like, slight mutation and it's being weird. And um, he figures it out and he's ecstatic 
he, he's so excited that he figured out how to cure this disease. And as he's being happy in front of his colleagues, they tell him, hey, the person the sample came from died two weeks ago. It's too late. Mm-hmm. And he's still happy because what he's valuing is not the health of the patient. He's valuing something else that's good, a scientific discovery that can in the future, hopefully lead to the health of the patient. But the patient that was directly in his context died without much consideration from him. And we see that as kind of cold and cruel and it is, but how often do we in our own lives not value the people to our right or to our left, but the goal that we're chasing after, right? And and that's the point of this theoretical example. The Nazi example is when that exact same thing is the case. I can't remember the name of this doctor, but he's trying to make medical advancements. And he see, he, he, he would see partnering with the Nazis and their ability to like fudge the ethics as the best way to make new scientific discoveries to then benefit humanity on a large scale. Right. And so he was involved in torturing and dissecting people in Auschwitz. And it's the same thing just taken up to another level. Um, And that's terrifying. And it should terrify us because if we value the improper thing, we can very easily do great evil, great evil without thinking about the costs. It's all for the greater good is what we tell ourselves. But is it really? Right. But it's climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are the, what are the costs? Who are we going to sacrifice is the question. And, and that's why grand narratives, I mean, and in my opinion, this is why the doctrine of progress is so dangerous. Yes. And that was exactly what I was going to say. This is the doctrine. This is what Newbegin talks about. Yes. If, if, as we can sacrifice the present and our morality in the present, and people of the present. In, in the people of the present. Or theoretical or people the, of the future. Yes. yes. Even though we're not and, supposed to have any more babies. And, and, and this, is, um, this is the utopian dream. It's also the nationalistic vision, right? So it goes and it splits in two ways, right? Nationalism right. or utopianism. Um, and both of them, I think, are incredibly toxic and incredibly dangerous. But anyway. To, to not belabor this point anymore, valuing the wrong thing first means you are willing to do unspeakable things to those things that you weigh as less valuable, which is why in Augustine's thought, and I think in Jesus's as well, you value God first and yourself and your neighbor in this interesting reciprocal relationship second, and everything else comes from that. One, I think two more things I want to highlight from Willard, and then at least I'll, I'll be done. Um, page 231 section, how many birds are you worth? Um, I think this is towards the end of this section. Let me see where this section ends. Yeah, this is, I think, three or four paragraphs up from the end of this section. 
Um, <clears throat> oh, it's right before the Timothy Timothy quote that I think you have right there. First, yeah. So this a few sentences right before that, he says, having our treasures in heaven frees us to live simply in the present so far as our vital needs are concerned. We work hard, of course, and we care for our loved ones, but we do not worry, not even about them. And the reason I wanted to highlight this is because it flows right into what I just said, right? If you're aiming at this utopian future or the security of having a, a fat savings account at the expense of things in the present, you'll lose the things in the present. You'll lose the present. And I mean, this is, this is the stereotypical businessman who works right. in marketing and doesn't have a good relationship with his wife or his kids because he's working for them, right? And he's confused because look, I'm doing all of this for you, but they don't feel it. Right, because you're and, around. And is he really doing it for them? Right, and that, that's a serious question to ask. And even if he is, you're, you're missing out on them. Right? And that's another very practical example. And this is why I think Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, this section that we've been covering, are so important, right? Is, are you not more valuable than the birds? Are you not more valuable than the grass of the field that's clothed in lilies, more beautiful than Solomon's splendors? So don't worry about the future. Yes, plan. Yes, work. Work hard. Work very hard. But also rest. And that's why Sabbath is so important. And we devalue it in our culture so, so much. Any thoughts? I think I one easy way that I catch myself when I am far too focused on the quote unquote future mm -hmm. is uh, when I continually have to tell everybody that I love, no, I can't see you. Yeah. Just like in our classic example, right? But I always make an aim to try and remedy that when I catch myself for a week or two and I haven't seen any friends. I haven't seen, I haven't talked to my parents. I haven't, you know, I've had to skip my small group a couple of times because I got really busy, which happens to all of us. There's seasons of very, very hectic work and you have, you sometimes have to forego those things for immediate deadlines. But I always try and carve out a little bit of that time just to make sure that I am present with those who are around me. Yeah. So one um, interesting example of this. So uh, I've been reading this book, Unveiling Empire, Reading Revelation Then and Now for 
my revelation course. And though I don't agree with everything in the book, I think they actually do a, a decent job of analyzing a lot of the, the factors of the book of Revelation and its historical context. Um, but on page 124, they have this table and they're talking about um, Revelation's bifurcated sense of time and space. And they have this section on time um, <clears throat> that talks about the present oriented worldview versus the future oriented worldview. And so they say the things of the future oriented worldview are locates goals and objectives in the future, actively, uh, activity occurs in the present to achieve a proximate or remote goal. The present is a line, um, is, is a line separating the past from the future. So there's this break between the past and the future and that break comes at the present and the future drives what is present. So the future is right. the orienting principle for the present. Doctrine of progress. Doctrine of progress. The present oriented worldview. Now they make, they make the argument that Jesus time, like the first century and around that, around that era, both hundred years before and after, and for the majority of human history, they make the, the argument that there is a present worldview is very dominant, not the future worldview, and that we're the anomaly. I think Jesus' words would indicate to us that the future-oriented worldview is far more prevalent than they give credit, because he's speaking against, I think, this future worldview. That isn't to say that we shouldn't take the future into account. I want to make that clear. Being prepared being smart and recognizing there is a future and that, that you do need to be prepared for is important. But if you lose the present for the sake of that, I think you've lost too much. So anyway, the present oriented worldview locates goals and objectives in the present. And I think Peterson has a lot to say about this too. He talks about how you, you need a grand narrative overarching goal, but you aren't going to be fulfilled in that because you're not going to reach that. Right. There's no particularity most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. There's no particularity. And what you need is smaller proximate goals. Right. Right. And so, and th this I think is really important is set for yourself proximate smaller goals that will lead you to that larger goal. The goal of getting a master's degree, finish the semester with good grades, the goal of finishing the semester with good grades, do your readings and assignments on time. Doing your readings and assignments on time should help you get good grades on the assignments, should help you get a good grade in the course, should help you pass the semester, should help you get the degree. Get the degree Y to do X, Y, or Z, right? They're all nested inside of each other. But if you only have this future orientation and you don't locate yourself in the present with those goals, you, you lose stuff. So anyway, present worldview locates goals and objectives in the present. Activity occurs in the present to achieve proximate goals only. Now, I think only is kind of stupid. I think you do need the future-oriented goals too. But I think if you prioritize those over the present goals, you're doing something wrong. The present has an extended duration. So it's not just this exact moment, but it's the moments that we are in around it. And the present drives what is forthcoming. So the future is determined by the present, not the present being determined by the future. And, and that's important too. So with all of that being said, and I'll, I'll end with this and Luke, you can pick it up and, and finish us off. Um, 
is I think what Jesus is encouraging us to do in this conversation about wealth and in reputation as well is locate ourselves in the present, trusting God to provide, working in our trust with God, right? Because we can't just trust God to provide and not actually do anything of our own selves. I mean, that's the whole peace, this faith conversation that we've been having. Um, so trusting God to provide, working in ourselves towards those goals, but ultimately valuing the things of the kingdom of God. And, and that I think is important, bar none. Well, I'm, uh, I'm going to read from screw tape again. Perfect. Uh, I can never read this letter without crying. So we'll see if I can get through it this time. <laughs> I, it's a shorter one. I might read all of it. I might just read parts of it. But this is letter 15. He's, he says, my dear Wormwood, I noticed, of course, that the humans were having a lull in their European war what they need, what they naively call the war. And I'm not surprised that there is a corresponding lull in the patient's anxieties. Do we want to encourage this or to keep him worried? Tortured fear and stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. Our choice between them raises important questions. The humans live in time, but our enemy destines them to eternity. He, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things to eternity itself, and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present point is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment, and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered him. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on the eternal union with him, or either meditating on the eternal union with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, giving thanks for the present pleasure. Our business is to get them away from eternity and from the present. With this in view, we have sometimes tempted a human, say a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value, for they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determined nature, and to that extent resembles eternity. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessities make all their passions point in that direction already. So that though about the so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear, also it is unknown to them, so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time, for the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is lit up with eternal rays. Hence, the encouragement we have given to all those schemes of such thought as creative evolution, scientific humanism, or communism, which fix men's affections on the future and the very core of temporality. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. Do not think lust an exception. When the present pleasure arrives, the sin which only interests us is already over. 
The pleasure is just the part of the process which we regret and would exclude if we could do so without losing the sin. To be sure, the enemy wants men to think of the future too, just so much as is necessary for now planning the aspects of justice or charity, which will probably, do, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. The duty of planning tomorrow's work, which you were just speaking of, is today's duty. Though its material is borrowed from the future, the duty, like all duties, is in the present. This is now, this is now straw splitting, and he does not want men to give the future their hearts, to place their treasure in it. We do. His ideal man is one who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, washes his mind of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. But we want a man hang-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by doing so we make him think he can attain the one or avert the other, depending for his faith on the success or failure of schemes, whose end he will not live to see, we want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere feel wherewithin to heap on the altar of the future every real gift which is offered to them in the present. It follows then, in general, and other things being equal, that it is better for your patient to be filled with anxiety or hope. It doesn't matter much which about this war for him to be living in the present. But the phrase living in the present is ambiguous. It may describe a process where, which is, it may describe a process which is really just as much concerned with the future as anxiety itself. Your man may be untroubled about the future, not because he is concerned with the present, but because he has persuaded himself that the future is going to be agreeable. As long as that is the real cause for his tranquility, his tranquility will do us good because it is only piling up more disappointment and therefore more impatience for him when his false hopes are dashed. If, on the other hand, he is aware of the horrors which may be in store for him and is praying for the virtues wherewithin to meet them, and meanwhile, concerning himself with the present, because there and there alone, all duty, all grace, all knowledge, and all pleasure dwell, his state is very undesirable and should be attacked at once. Wow. We'll leave it to Lewis, man. Either with eternity or with the present. Because here and only here, all virtue, all grace, all duty lies. Yeah. Which is no. why I'll end with this. And I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot. Which is why the practice of those virtues, of that grace, of that duty in the present bears fruit in the future. This is why Jesus speaks of things in the order in which he speaks of them. Mm -hmm. I cannot love my enemy I cannot forgive those who slight me. I cannot pray for those who persecute me as little as I get persecuted. If I cannot love those around me.
And it is only in the day-to-day that I can practice those virtues, that I can give the gifts, that I can do the thing that then could bear fruit for a greater consummation in the future. I can't get the degree if I don't do the paper now. So. That's it. That's all I got. Yeah, same.